6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, Dr. Chuck Missler's daily radio program connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Mister completes his session entitled, The Birth of a Nation. The Feast of Trumpets. Many people think the Feast of Trumpets is the big deal. It's coincident with Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is a civil new year, but the Feast of Trumpets is consistent with it, both on the first of history. And that's when they have a great blowing of trumpets, and some people try to tie that to the last trump remarks Paul makes, which for some reasons I won't get into here, I don't think fit. And also don't confuse it with the seventh trumpet judgment of the book of Revelation. Those are all three different things. It is followed by Yom Norim, which is the days of affliction, which prepare them, of course, for the big one for them uh, each year is the Yom Kippur, the day of national repentance. The high priest enters the Holy of Holies. This is only on this day throughout the year after great ceremonial preparation. This is the day they have the scapegoat, and they put the sins on the scapegoat and lead them in the wilderness, and so forth. Then this is followed five days later with Sukkot, the Feast of Booths, called the Feast of Tabernacles. It's very possible that this was the season that uh, Matthew 17 takes place, the Transfiguration, Mount Transfiguration, because Peter is preoccupied about making three booths. These booths are interesting because, uh, and you go to Israel, or in, even a, 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 among observant Jews, you'll discover they actually still do this today. They'll build a booth in the backyard. The specifications require that you can see the sky through the ceiling and the wind can blow through the walls. The idea is to uh, typify, represent the temporary dwellings they endured while wandering the wilderness. And the Feast of Booths climaxes when they leave that for their permanent dwellings. And that's why some people feel that this is the setting up of Christ's kingdom and so forth. Anyway, let's get on to the other books here to wrap up the Torah. Book of Numbers deals with the wilderness wanderings. In fact, the Hebrew term for the book isn't Numbers, it's Be'mirdar, which is uh, in, it's in the wilderness. The Greek called it Erethmoi in the Latin numeri, because it happens to include two censuses, so that's why they call it the numbering of the people, which isn't the most relevant part of the book, but that's where it gets its title within the Greek translation, and thus our English translation. That's not the Hebrew term. But anyway, Numbers continues where Exodus left off. We paused Exodus to do Leviticus, get all that background, but then we jump in and pick up where Exodus left off. And Numbers is a book about arrested progress. They blew it. It took only 40 hours to get Israel out of Egypt. It took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. 40 years of wilderness wandering. Very strange thing. There's a place called Kadesh Barnea. And after 40 days getting there, Moses sends out 12 spies there at the border to enter the land that's been prom the promised land. Ten of the 12 come back terrified. And don't knock it, they had reason to be terrified. It says, there we saw the Nephilim, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, so we were in their sight. There were giants in the land, these strange hybrids, very similar to the ones that we encountered before the flood. Different occasion, 
But same kind of thing. Nephilim, the fallen ones. Giants is the way it's translated. But they're more than just giants. They were hybrids, apparently uh, uh, mischief by the fallen angels again. So these ten were justifiably frightened, but two of them, Joshua and Caleb, were unimpressed. They said, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. Why? Because God's with them. If God's on your side, you're a majority. <laughs> Plus. <laughs> so remember Joshua and Caleb were the two of the twelve that came back with a good report. The other ten had their knees uh, knocking. So we have a lost opportunity. And the people of children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt! Or would God that we had died in this wilderness! The people are shook by the report of the ten spies. And they say, gee, it would been better off if we had died. And God says, good idea. Funny you should mention. <laughs> so God threatens to wipe out everybody. But Moses intercedes. Prayer is always God's way of enlisting you in what He wants to do, by the way. Keep that in mind. So God says, Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and all that were numbered of you, according to your whole number of twenty years old and upward, which ye have murmured against me. In other words, those adults that were murmuring are going to pass on. He didn't wipe them all out. He let them live their natural lives. They're going to wander until that whole generation's gone. Their children, who weren't accountable to murder, remember, they're the ones that are going to inherit. There's only two exceptions made. Joshua and Caleb, they have the good report. They become the leaders that will then endure after those 40 years to lead the, the conquest of the land. So Joshua and Caleb and the, and the children of the murmurs entered the land. The others passed away. Forty years, actually 38, but who's quibbling? God prepared Moses, of course, for the 40 years. He had, remember, he'd married Zipporah, the daughter of Jethro, the priest of Midian, on the east shore of the Aqaba. The Midianites, by the way, descended from Keturah. So they're not even descendant from Sarah, but we won't get into that here. And the real Mount Sinai, of course, is Midian. So it's, it's a Midian thing. So Now, why is all this going on? The New Testament tells us all these things happen unto them for examples. And they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. In other words, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul in his letter, makes the point that all these details, all these stories in the Old Testament, are there for our understanding and learning. The tragedy in most Christian churches, they've abandoned the Old Testament. They, well, the New Testament fulfilled the Old, so they don't bother with the Old. As a result, they don't really understand the New Testament. This word examples, by the way, is actually the word uh, tupos, which means it's a word from which we get type or prototype, a figure, an image, a prefiguring. And the Bible is full of those. They're, most, they're some of the most exciting discoveries is when you begin to, uh, and the Holy Spirit leads you to see some of these types or, or models that we'll look at. Let you give you one of them is manna. Remember in manna, they, were, they needed food. So God gave them the supernatural bread that fell every night, the manna. He also, there was a strange incident of the brazen serpent where um, they're getting bit by snakes and, and God has Moses make a brass serpent, put it on a hill, and those that look at the hill get healed. What a strange way to do a healing. Then the waters from a rock. 
How many times have you ever struck a rock and had water fall come out of it, right? But it happens twice. And there's something about the order of the camp I want to show you. I'm just, I'm, there's dozens of these things in numbers. I've just picked a few to give you a flavor of it. The manna. They were in need of food, so God provided a daily provision of manna, a miracle bread from heaven, right? And it's interesting, it was to be provided six days. On the seventh day, it wouldn't come. So on the sixth day, you're supposed to pick up twice as much. Normally, you didn't take more than you need for a day. It would spoil. And, but that one day, if you took twice as much for the day that it wouldn't fall, you're all set. You've got a double portion on the sixth to prevent you gathering any on Shabbat, on the Sabbath day. And by the way, I want you to notice something. This was before the law was given. This, isn't, this happens to be in Exodus 16. The law was given in Exodus 20. So this is in advance. They were observing the Shabbat before the law was given. Very important idea. Then we've got the brazen serpent. And by the way, I'll, I'll come back. Each one of these is, is points to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ says, I am the bread of life. The brazen serpent. Weird deal. In response to murmuring, God sent fiery serpents which bit the people and they died. Moses intercedes. And then he's instructed to place a brass serpent on a pole on a high hill and all that would look toward it would be spared. Now if you're in the book of Numbers 21 and you read this, that's weird. What a strange way to heal people. But that's what God chose. This comes up later in Hezekiah. This brass serpent's still around. People are worshiping it, so he destroys it because it's become an idol. But still, you have no explanation. What's going on here? Brass? Serpent? A serpent's a type of sin. You put sin up on a hill? What's, what's going on here? Jesus explains it to you in John chapter 3. You see? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so shall the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In other words, this... The serpent remedy in Numbers 21 was deliberately designed by God to anticipate the ultimate remedy we have in Jesus Christ. That's called a macro code. That's the macro code. It's an anticipatory code of structure. On a word processor, if you're doing your word processor and you're going to send a fax or, or make an email or a letter, often you can hit one key that'll format it for you and you go and put your stuff in it and it becomes a fax. You know, it's an anticipatory code, a macro a macro code in computer parlance, a code that anticipates subsequent content. That's exactly what the, the brazen serpent thing does. But it means that the, the designer of that code is outside the dimensionality of time because he knows what's coming, and he models it to anticipate what's coming. It's interesting that this comment by Jesus Christ in John 14 is the setup for the most famous verse in the entire Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What a, word, what a verse that is. Justifiably the best known verse in the Bible. Well, we get to the waters of Meribah. Now, this is a strange one. At Rephidim, they were without water. God says to Moses, take your staff, strike the rock, and water will come. And it did. That's in Exodus 17. And they get their water. Incredible, incredible miracle. Many years later, they're at Mirabah, another location. They're again without water. This time, Moses is just frustrated with the people. And God tells Moses, Take, go to that rock and speak to it, and it'll give you water. Moses goes out there, and he takes a staff like he did before, and strikes the rock with his staff, 
The water came, the people got their water, but God says, Moses? And he puts them in the penalty box. He said, see, because you misrepresented me to the people. I wasn't mad at them. You were mad at them. You gave the impression to them that I was mad at them. I wasn't. You've misrepresented me. You get the picture? But what happens as a result of that is a shock. Get the picture. Moses was 40 years in training in Egypt, goes 40 years to Midian to get in the wilderness to get prepped for the exodus, is leading these people another 40. He's 120 years old. And his dream through these 120 years was to be able to lead the people into the promised land. God says, hey Moses, you didn't do what I told you to do. You didn't follow directions. So you're not going to go in the promised land. Your people will go, but you're not going to go. You can see it from the hill. We'll let you up the hill and let, get you a look at it. But he didn't make it. And so he gets a chance to see it from the land. He passes away. God himself buries Moses, which is weird. That's interesting. What's even weirder is that Satan and Michael fight over his body. It's not mentioned in the Bible there, but it's alluded to in the book of Jude. We'll deal with it when we get there. But when you study this, there is something kind of interesting here. If Moses had done what God told him to do, the two water from the rock events would profile the first and second coming of Christ. He was smitten the first time, not the second time. You follow me? You can begin, it could have been a model, and that could be one of the reasons God was frustrated with Moses, because he didn't do what he was told. If he had, we'd enjoy another one of these very profound types. But uh, the type, we do know that the rock, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, the rock was Jesus Christ. He's the source of our living water. We got first time because he was struck, he was smitten. Second time for the asking. And that's the way it would have been if Moses had, had done it the way God told him to. And because of his failure to follow directions, Moses is denied entry in the promised land. That should chill us. Here's, a, here's Moses, his faithful servant, but he did blow it. And he takes the penalty of it. But I want to show you something else that may come as a surprise. Because uh, you obviously everything in the Scripture is there by design. And some people challenge me, say, what about Numbers 2? It's a boring chapter, a lot of numbers and stuff. Is every detail there by design? What might be hidden behind the details of the camp of Israel? Jesus said in Psalm 40, verse 7, and also Hebrews 10, 7 is quoted, The volume of the book is written of me. Every detail in the Bible points to Jesus Christ. Let's challenge this here. If you wade through Numbers 2, you'll discover they number each of the tribes. Judah has 74,600, Issachar 54,4, etc., etc. They're all on the screen here. And these numbers are the men older than 20 able to go to war. So it does not include the children or women. It doesn't include the aged. Follow me? So to find out what the real population is, you probably have to multiply each one of these by some factor, two or three, pick a number. So these are core populations. And you go through all of these, say, gee, check, that's exciting. What do I do with all that information? Well, bear with me. Something else you'll learn in numbers is that these 12 tribes are to muster into four camps. There's the camp of Judah, where Issachar and Zebulun muster with him and under his ensign. And then there's a camp of Reuben, where Simeon and Gad muster under his thing. 
Judah, of course, had a lion, a lion of the tribe of Judah. It was on his ensign. They'd all rust, must, each one had a symbol on their ensign. It comes from the 12 signs of the, the uh, Matzeroth. But uh, Judah's is the lead of the camp of Judah. Reuben, Simeon, Gad become the camp of Reuben. He, his symbol is a man and uh, his ensign, and they rally around that. Ephraim has as a symbol an ox, strength, beast of burden. Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin rally around that, which figures because Benjamin and Joseph were, Ephraim and Manasseh were sons of Joseph, right? And Joseph and Benjamin were the children of Rachel. They were in a very privileged group. Anyway, and then we've got Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. Dan was originally a serpent, but uh, Ahizer, the head of the tribe of Dan, didn't like that, so he switched it to an eagle with a serpent in its mouth, by the way. And that's recorded in, uh, in some of the Bible handbooks. But there you go. You say, geez, Jack, that's, that's, uh, that's really thrilling that you gave us that information. What do I do with it? Well, notice that these camps, then, are slightly different sizes. Okay. In the center of the camp is the tribe of Levi, the tabernacle. It's always faced through the, on the east side is where the door is. And the Levites take care of this. The three families of the Levites, the uh, Gershonites, the Kohathites, and the Merarites, have all kinds of duties to deal with this moving portable. But Moses and his brother Aaron and the priests are on the east side. Not all Levites are priests. Sons of Aaron are priests. Okay. You need to think like a rabbi here. They tried, give them credit, they tried very hard to be precise in doing what God said. The camp of Judah was to camp east of the Levites, okay? The camp of Reuben south of the Levites, and to be strict obedient to these, that denies the area that's southeast. you either east or south, you can't be southeast because then you're neither south or east. In other words, only the cardinal directions, north, south, east, west, are ordained in the Torah. And only the width of Levite's camp would be allowed. And the length would be proportional. So here you have the Levites in the middle. And when you number those, there are about 22,000 there. And however, I don't know how wide they were, whether it's 100 yards or 100 miles, call it whatever, but its width is a unit we're going to deal with. So Judah, under the tribal standard of a lion, would camp as wide as Levites and then take as much space as they needed eastward, right? And uh, Reuben uh, was to the south. He had a symbol of a man. And they would camp there and take the, as wide as the Levites were. They're, 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 as long as they're, they're, they can be south, as long as they're no wider than the Levites. And out they go. And it leaves a question, what about here? What about in between these two? Well, that's southeast. It's neither south nor east. So that wouldn't be rabbinically comfortable, right? And so likewise, we've got southwest, northwest, northeast as areas that are not specified for any of the tribes. Ephraim, with the symbol of the ox, would go to the west. And Dan, with his eagle, having substitute for the serpent. These come from the prophecies of Jacob in Genesis 49. But in any case, uh, there's Dan with the eagle. Now the question is, okay, we've got, we've got the arrangement. But these populations of those camps are different. The largest was Judah, the smallest was Ephraim, and the other two are about the same. So what I want to do here is imagine that we have a helicopter out here that we're going to take a trip. And the helicopter I've arranged for is a very unusual one because it's also a time machine. And so as we get in this collectively, imagine in our ima imagination, get in this helicopter, we're going to fly over to Israel. 
we're going to have it also go backwards in time to the time of the wilderness wanderings. As it goes there, we're going to approach from the east, and we will see right in the middle of the camp, of course, the Levite area with the tabernacle. And then we'll see these four arms. But as we get there, we'll also see the arms in proportion. And so as we approach in our imaginary helicopter, what do we see? A what? A cross, exactly, exactly. Judah was 186 units, and Ephraim only 108, and the other two roughly 150. So, yes, it's a, it's a scale drawing of a, of a cross. I think it's very interesting. There's a, here's a sketch from the air of the camp of Israel hidden away in Numbers chapter 2, if you know how to look. And uh, I think that's kind of fun. And, of course, that, needless to say, is a model of the throne of God. We have God sitting in the middle with his throne and the rest of it. And he's surrounded by an ox, a man, an eagle, and a lion. If you've done your Bible homework, you know that from Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1 and 10, and Revelation, there's always cherubim around guarding the throne of God that have faces, right? Four faces. An ox, a man, an eagle, and a lion, which also profile the four Gospels, but we'll get, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Last uh, book in the Torah is Deuteronomy, where the laws are reviewed. It's sort of a bridge between the first four books of the Torah, outside the land, and the next seven books, which will be in the land. So it's like a bridge in that sense. It's actually three sermons by Moses and the record of his death. It includes some great things. The Shema, of course, the great commandment. There are more, this is probably Jesus' favorite book. He quotes from the book of Deuteronomy more than he does any other book of the Bible. The Song of Moses, which is a prophecy all over the twelve tribes, has some surprising little tidbits hidden away in it. The book, of course, concludes with the death of Moses, obviously added by a, a scribe, uh, but um, it has, uh, we know that M Michael fights with Satan over his body, as the book of Jude talks about. There's also the transfiguration appearance. Moses will show up on, in Matthew 17 along with Elijah at the transfiguration. That's a strange thing. And it's my personal suspicion that he is one of the two witnesses that show up in Revelation 11. Scholars have different views. That happens to be wine. I have some reasons we'll deal with when we get there. But you should know the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. This obviously is on every doorpost of every Jewish dwelling. Typically they have a little masusa with a scripture, and the scripture is usually the Shema that's in there. Uh, it's also the very verse that Jesus quotes as the greatest commandment. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, the Shema. And it goes on then to say, These words which I command thee as they shall be in thine heart, thou shalt teach them diligently to thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou get, risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thy hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and upon thy gates. And that's why they do that. That's why they often uh, will uh, celebrate with little leather pouches on their wrists and on their forehead, which carry scripture, they, the, the phylacteries as they call them. It's interesting that a Jewish home will always have that on the, on the doorpost. Now, it's interesting that there's only one form of biblical schooling in the Bible. It's called homeschooling. Just thought I'd throw that out to offend any teachers that are here. The Shema also says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. The word one there in the Hebrew is echad. 
It means compound unity, a collective sense. It's plurality and unity, like one cluster of grapes is the way it would be appropriate. It is not the word yahid, which would be absolute unity, like one singular, which is never used of Yehovah, or Yahweh, or however you want to pronounce it. The word that's translated Lord, Yahweh, uh, is, appears three times just in this verse. But the book also, Numbers concludes with the, the dangers of compromise, because there's two and a half tribes, Gad, Reuben, and half the tribe of Manasseh, that really like the ground up there in the place called Bashan, good cattle ground. That's the land they want, but they haven't conquered the land yet. But they ask Moses, that's what they want for the land. It's a compromise of sight, sort of like Lot had done, by the way, but Moses agrees that they can have it after they conquer the land. They want the tribes to be with them as they march in and conquer the land of Canaan. When they finish the conquest, yes, they can go back and that'll be their allotment, uh, and they will, they'll return. And the region that they're talking about is a region we call the Golan Heights. This region was the first to fall to idolatry, it was the first to go into captivity, and it remains to this day the vulnerable buffer zone uh, of Israel. Well, this concludes a rather hurried, quick snapshot of the remainder of the Torah. In the next session, it's a military session with some real surprises. Joshua. The first thing you should be alert to, Yehoshua, is the Hebrew, which would be translated into Greek would be Jesus. So we have Jesus on a name of the book of the Old Testament. That should get your attention. It's a military thing, a military conquest of Canaan. And we're going to talk about the long day of Joshua that many Christians have trouble with. We'll deal with that very directly. Then we get to the book of Judges, 350 years of doing what was right in their own eyes. It's going to tell you what value relativism will lead to. And then we have the, the, the dessert for the whole evening will be the book of Ruth, a little four-chapter book that's probably my favorite book. I can't say it because they're all favorites, I guess, but Ruth is a treasure. And you'll be surprised what little treasures are hidden away in the book. You will not understand the book of Revelation unless you understand the book of Ruth. You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Missler, teaching through his series entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, here on 6640. If you would like further information about materials available from Dr. Missler, please contact us through this station or visit our website at khouse.org. Until next time, when Dr. Missler continues this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.